Welcome to another episode of the Skeptical Sheep Podcast, where I bring you real stories and raw conversations from people who have left Christianity behind. You'll hear the highs and lows of what it's really like to leave your faith. I'm your host, Laura Flood, and let's meet this week's guest. Hi, everybody. I have Tim here, and he's going to introduce himself to you. Hi, my name is Tim. I am, um, let's see, where do I even start? I'm married for 21 years. I have seven children. The youngest is seven. The oldest is 20. Uh, right now, I'm the, the the sales guy for an e-commerce fulfillment company in Pennsylvania. Before that, I had cancer. Before that, I owned a CrossFit gym. Uh, before that, I worked at a bank. Before that, I was a youth minister. I sold photocopiers. Um, and I sold life insurance. So that's that's kind of the, the, the 10,000 foot view of where I got, how I got to here. You've lived quite a life so far, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, it seems that way. So can you tell me just from the very beginning of your life, your earliest memories that with Christianity and how that came about? Yeah, we were, you know, we were, um, you know, born, born Catholic. You know, we were, we were raised Catholic uh, up until really fifth or sixth grade. I went to Catholic school. Um, it was it was pretty miserable towards the end there. I really was not, I never figured out why, which was never really well liked by a couple of the kids there. And it really made my life kind of miserable there. So we left that school uh, when I was done with fifth grade. And at the same time, we left left the church. And my mom would go you know, around town and find find a new place. And we'd all go there for a little while. And then you know, somebody, something, something somebody said would, would, would set her off and she'd disagree with this. So she'd go someplace else and search around for a couple places and she'd settle in and we'd follow her there. And then uh, landed in a, a Lutheran church for a while. It's like Catholic light, you know, so that was kind of familiar. It was very liturgical. And then we ended up in a Presbyterian church for a while, which is probably still one of my favorites. I'm still in contact with that pastor. Actually, he's uh, one of my favorite human beings. Uh, but then I started playing playing guitar and around that time, around fifth grade or so, and my guitar teacher was a musician at my old Catholic parish. And myself and one of the other students were were played and sang well enough that when he couldn't he couldn't do the music that Sunday, he would ask us to. So that's kind of how I, I got back into Catholicism. And then we got we got kind of deep into the so kind of deep into the into that that whole charismatic renewal, life in the spirit. Movement, which um, if you're not in that, you probably don't know what it is, but it's 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 the you know the praying in tongues and the prophecy side of of Catholicism. I went on a, a mission trip with Teen Missions International that summer, which was weird because I was I was uh, you know both feet into Catholicism at that point again, and and they are not. I don't know if you uh, <laughs> if you know anything about TMI, but they definitely are not Catholic. So that that made for some interesting conversations. We almost got a couple people sent home because you're really not supposed to talk about specifics of dogma when you're there. You know, and I had like three or four people walking around camp praying the rosary, which is pretty dogmatic. You know, it's a, that's a specifically Catholic thing that Baptists don't tend to do. There, there's some interesting backpedaling to get us all from being sent home for that. Came home, uh, went to uh, Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, which is a, a small Catholic college in Ohio, known for its uh, what they call dynamic orthodoxy. Uh, that's right. I got my degree in theology and, uh, and also a second major in philosophy and, uh, and met my wife. And we got married there. 
yeah, and then started moved out moved out here and was a youth minister and then all that other fun stuff. So when did your experience change? You were a youth minister for how many years? Uh, I did that for three years, 2000 to 2003. And then were you still involved in the church for a while or did you leave right when you were a youth minister? No, well, I was I was still involved deep in our, our, our Catholic bubble. You know, like it, there wasn't a a single moment. There wasn't one like epiphany kind of moment for some time. It was really it was a it was a piling up of 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 evidence and experience and conversations and relationships. Just this doesn't like some of this just doesn't make sense, you know. And like and when you start pulling on the threads, it's like a shag carpet, right? Like you pull on one thread and and kind of the whole floor moves. So like, but I remember first, even when I was back in high school, thinking this is a little silly. Like I was, I was with a, a buddy of mine who's a, who's a priest now. We were in in uh, up in Jersey where we grew up, smoking cigars late at night, and 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 honestly debating whether or not Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, had a body before he was incarnate, and if that was. How is that possible? And I remember thinking the answer to this question really doesn't matter. Like this is just a dumb question. Like, this is just silly. This is and but but I buried it. Like, no, 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 it's not a silly question. No, it's Jesus. It can't be silly. So I I shoved that down. That's really like the first time I remember thinking, this is this is odd. You know, I like the way you described that because I think it's really common when I talk to people who have left their faith. I always hear them talk about how maybe throughout the years they questioned something here or there, but instead of really following that intuition and looking into it, they suppressed it and told themselves, well, no, it's somehow it makes sense because, you know, God is God and it's fine. And I shouldn't question that. I'm wrong, right? I have to be wrong. That's the whole idea, right? I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy. I'm not smart enough. Don't trust your intuition. Like this isn't right. Oh yeah. Or Satan's trying to trick you, man. If that's possible, how strong is God really? There's so that's that's part of the questions that got to it. So that was the first the first time I remember actually thinking, this is silly. Like that was that was and I was 17. I remember maybe 18. It's that night that kind of sticks in my head, and there's so many of the other little details. I knew that this was important, even though I wasn't willing or able to acknowledge it at that point. How did you go from these little doubts that you suppressed here and there to making the decision to never go back to church again? Well, truth be told, I still do go to church, um, mostly because I love my wife. Um, and it would cause more harm than good and, and, and raise more problems if I really put my foot down and didn't go. I think that would cause more strife than me going for an hour a week and hanging out. Um, like I said, we have seven kids. She is still uh, deep in, you know, when, when I got sick, she doubled down. I love her. Uh, because I love her, I go. I feel like a hypocrite sitting in the pew. You know, I don't really participate. I just go through the motions and you know, make sure the kids aren't fooling around too much. But but I go. But she knows, and, and a few people, a few people know that I just don't buy it anymore. A lot of the friends that I have now don't necessarily know it, don't necessarily care. Like religion isn't what we based our friendship on. So it it started after, it really started when I was you know, in Jersey questioning whether or not Jesus had a body before he had a body. God, that sounds dumb. When I worked at the church, it's, it's difficult to pray where you get paid. And you start to see kind of the underbelly of how things work. And even at a parish level, like at a local church level, man, there's a lot of crap. 
And I just feel like this is not the way that if this is all true, this is not the way that we should be acting. Like this is not how people should be treated with all this petty political bullshit and all this power grabbing at such a dumb individual church level where you really have like nobody had any real power except what was going to be said at mass on Sunday. Like it really didn't matter, but people were clamoring for this, you know, this seat at the table that didn't make any difference. And like, it just, it bothered me that like, if this is, if this is all true, then this makes no sense. Like this, this behavior of the people that are supposed to be the examples of good Catholics or the way they're acting. And then another step down the line, we used to homeschool the kids and the school that was right up the street was, was awesome. It's a really good public school. We could walk there. Like this is, this is great. And my, uh, so I was kind of pushing to go there, but my wife was still, no, we want to homeschool, want to homeschool. And we had the, the homeschooling curriculum had been delivered to the house. And we came home, I came home one day and the kids were they found a spider in the basement. It was a new house and they found a spider and they're all excited. They want to find out what kind of spider it was. They thought they'd go to their science book. And uh, so they went to the homeschool science book and they didn't learn what kind of spider it was, but they did learn that there's no more dinosaurs because they missed the boat. Like even if we're going to go scripture, right? If we're going to say Bible's true, we're going to read that story. Okay. Noah's Ark, that happened. That's a thing. Okay. There's two versions of it. One is that Noah took two of all the animals, and one is that he took two of all the unclean animals and seven pairs of all the clean animals. But it doesn't say anything about it except the dinosaurs. Right? That's not in there. <laughs> it says it's either, two, either a pair of each or a couple pairs of each, but it didn't really exclude any of them. They were all supposed to be there. Okay, so that's wrong there. It's also wrong scientifically. We know that you know the dinosaurs missed the boat because they've been dead for tens of millions of years prior to the boat time but they didn't get into that in this book either so then i started reading the rest of it like and like all of it was like the word problems were like if you have four christians and three are martyred how many christians are still alive like like it doesn't it was silly like i don't know if that was an exact example but that was the vibe like it was just all like if you went to sunday school all the time what would you what would it look like and it was that like okay it's time for literature let's read exodus you started realizing in that moment, well, you started doubting the the education that you were giving your children at that time. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Like this is, this is absurd. So we, we did put them in public school at that point. And that was just the two older ones. We've had, you know, we've had five more since then. That was, that was a big part of it. And then part of that five more kids is another one too. Like the whole Catholic sexual ethics is, you know, sex is for making babies. If it happens mm-hmm. to feel good, that's nice. But really, it's for the babies and um and you have to be open to life every time every single time there has to be the, that possibility um that you could in theory make a baby here in spite of you know what your financial or mental or physical conditions are that has to be there and that that has rubbed me the wrong way that's maybe a bad analogy but it has bothered me for a while. I mean, like, and I don't want it to sound like I don't love my kids. I do. I really do. I love each and every one of them. All of them is a lot. And the last one was, was a, a tremendous struggle with, with my wife and I, like she, we were older, we were tired and you know, I we were exhausted. It just, it was, it was tough to say, okay, cool. I'm excited about having yet another child. You know, I'm, I'm running a small business. I'm building a gym. Like it was good, but it wasn't, I wasn't killing it, you know, and I, to have another kid in the middle of it seemed like that'd be a lot. 
But it, it was just the kind of decision that we were not theologically free to make. There's ways around that within Catholic sexual ethics. The biggest one is called natural family planning, where uh, a woman tracks her cycle and when she ovulates, and then you just choose to not have sex. It's the most wholesome way to cheat the system. It's a very holy loophole. So you were doubting the homeschool education because it was just polluted with uh, indoctrination of Christian beliefs. You're yeah. you're starting to feel overwhelmed because you're trying to do what the church is telling you and have as many kids as, you know, quote unquote, God wants to give you. And you're finding yourself like not liking your lifestyle is what it sounded right. like. like I, I've got all these kids and I'm broke. Like, I feel like, why am I playing by the rules and getting punished for it? Yeah. And you say, you know, if you're saying, Lord, you gotta, you gotta, you know, do this all and play by the rules. Cool. I'll do that. Why are you not then also taking care of me? Right. Because there's this, there's this thing that is taught in Christianity. Like if you trust God and you don't use birth control and you let him give you all the blessings he wants to give you, uh, he'll provide, you know, he'll put when the time right. comes, he'll always provide. But what I hear from people is that that's not the case. Yeah. I mean, like, I mean, do you call providing being on food stamps? Like, I'm not sure that's that's the, the model he had in mind. You know, it's definitely not the model that makes me feel like a provider or a husband or a man. You know, I'm working my ass off. I can barely make ends meet. You know, I'm finally doing good now. But, you know, it took a long time. And it took me getting out of that mindset of looking for, you know, a daddy in the sky to kind of help things out and get my ass in gear and do it myself. That has moved me in a, in a good direction. You know, it, it kind of creates this this idea of, of of dependency and despondency, and not an inability almost to take care of yourself, to take responsibility for what is actually happening in your day to day. And when I really started questioning seriously, was after I had started my gym, you know, and started we we built something that I I think was was very special and changed lives in a very in a very real and tangible way, like. People got strong under a barbell and then learned how to get strong in their relationships. I remember one of the first people ever joined, like I watched her grow in confidence because she could throw heavy weights around and then leave her abusive dickhead husband of 20 something years because she finally had enough confidence in herself to say, this is bullshit. This is not what life ought to be. This is not how I deserve to be treated. And I'm getting the fuck out of here. He was a dirtbag, but he, but you know, she married him young and she loved him and she thought he could get better. And, and she was this timid little mouse when she came through the door and then she started throwing a barbell around and damn, if things didn't change, you know, I saw more real change in people's lives by teaching them how to pick up heavy things than I did in any of the lives I tried to affect by teaching them about Jesus. That story gave me chills. Something about it. Um, <laughs> something about right. it was was so beautiful, and the fact that you said it was something as simple as people f becoming more confident and empowered due to something like weightlifting, whereas you tried to empower people through religion for years and it wasn't working, and here you are doing something so simple. Yeah, like it's it's so easy, but it it it, it develops everything else in your life. And I don't want this to turn into a, like an apologetic course for CrossFit. That's not what I'm trying to say. You know, I still sold the gym. It's closed. Like that chapter's over. I still work out all the time, but like, and for the same reasons, but there's something about chasing something that's realistic 
and tangible, measurable and visible. Like 200 pounds is 200 pounds, no matter what. I don't care if you believe it's heavier or you believe it's lighter or you believe that it's not even a barbell or that barbell doesn't exist or it does exist, but I'm wrong about what I think about it. The weight gives no shits, right? It's 200 pounds. You can either pick it up or you can't. It told me that. And it also put me in, in contact with some of the finest human beings I've ever met in my life that had nothing to do with religion at all. And that caused some serious cognitive dissonance. At, at first, because the, the, the girl that I was talking about, she was a Christian, right? So I saw this as kind of a, you know, when I started out, I was still pretty deep into it. And my hair, head was still buried in the sand pretty far. You know, so I saw this as kind of, you know, God working through me somehow and her realizing her potential in Christ and all this stuff. And But then I saw the same thing happening to people that weren't Christians and people that had no faith. People thought it was silly. And some of my best friends at the time and some of the, the finest human beings that, that I've ever known walked through the doors of that gym. And that really got me seeing like, man, like all the stuff that we thought about atheists, that they just have nothing to live for and they're so miserable and they just want to go out and, and shoot heroin and fuck. And that's all they want to do. And it was just wrong, just flat out wrong. These are good people that, that care deeply about other human beings and making their lives better and, and, and are bothered by injustice and, you know, and don't do a lot of the same things I don't do, but for very different reasons, you know, not because God told me to, but because that's just the right thing to do. You know, like simple things like that, be a good person, be a kind person. Like don't be a dick. Like it's not complicated. And if you don't know what that looks like, it's, it's not a religion problem that you have. It's, it's, it's empathy, right? Like it's just basic humanity. You don't know how to not be an asshole, the problem isn't because you don't have Jesus, it's because you're probably an asshole. And meeting people who were good people, who were inherently good people just because, was something yeah. that was not familiar to you before, no. you know, before you started questioning yeah. your beliefs. Exactly. Yeah. And I was in such a Catholic bubble that I couldn't break out of it if I tried. And this really opening this gym uh, really forced that on me in a way that I that I never would have expected. And was super excited about. So was that your biggest turning point or were you, did you still kind of have one foot in the door of belief for a while? I still had a foot in the door for a while. What really got me was when I got cancer. Uh, that that was kind of the last straw. You know, like I've been feeling like I've been playing by the rules my whole life and, and shit's just not working out in a lot of ways, a lot of key ways. Like I have a lovely wife. I have seven beautiful kids. Like I'm not complaining too much. Yeah. It seemed like people around me, everything they touched turned to gold and like, and they're doing great. And I'm struggling day in, day out, but feeling like every decision I made has been, has been fueled and guided by really what I thought I was being led to do through prayer and meditation and all this stuff. I felt like you know, this is what I should be doing. If that's the case, then why am I struggling so bad? You know, I'm playing by the rules. Why is it, why is it so rough? And then I get cancer. Like, come on, man. If I, I don't need friends like that. When I, when I got sick, it really bugged me, you know, and, and really like I've been doing right my whole life. And to, as a reward for all that good work, I get lymphoma and I get a really nasty kind of lymphoma. Like, come on, are you kidding me? Like, this is this is the reward for a life well lived. I've run the race, I've fought the fight, and I end up with cancer at 40 with seven kids. Like, come on, like how is this how is this the treatment that you would like to have in in a good and healthy relationship? 
Like it just doesn't, it just doesn't click. And the sicker I got, the worse I, I felt about the whole thing. And the more angry I got at people saying uh, they would pray for me, which was cool, but then not do anything. You know, like, and it was the people from the gym that really stepped up. Like they're the ones that set up a meal train so that I didn't have to worry about feeding my family literally for six months. We had more food than we knew what to do with. And that was led by the people in the gym. The people in the gym picked up and ran the thing while I was getting chemo. Like I couldn't do anything. I thought I was going to get chemo on Wednesday, you know, and take Thursday and Friday off and then be back at it Monday morning. And there was no way in hell that was going to happen. I was wrecked, wrecked. Like chemo is like the whole experience, zero out of five stars. I do not recommend. It just sucked. But the people at the gym said, you know what? We've got something special here. We love this. We love you. We're going we're gonna to make sure this stays alive. You know, there's no reason for this to die just because you might. And they stepped it up. And for six months, they did it on their own. You know, with, with almost no help from me at all. I just, I couldn't do it. And then what happened with my disease is, um, you know, I went through, I had non-Hodgkin's, diffuse large B-cell non-Hodgkin's lymphoma is my diagnosis. The first traditional round of treatment is called R-CHOP. It's uh, every three weeks, you spend a day at the hospital and you get pumped full of poison. You feel okay for a day or two. And then by the end of the weekend, you feel like, um, you feel like shit. And then you just keep getting, feeling worse until the Sunday before you got to go back, you start to feel better. By that Wednesday morning, you're feeling all right. And then they pump you full of poison again. And it just keeps cycling through six times through. It goes around and around and around. So four and a half months of this, uh, of getting sicker and sicker and sicker. And about halfway through, I told the docs, like, look, I don't, I don't think this is working. Something's not, something's not right yet. You know, it, it, it felt like it was working, but now something's different. And when you have something foreign like that growing inside of you, uh, you, can, you can tell. You can feel it. But everyone said, no, 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 trust the medicine. Yeah, trust the process. Give it time. You're only halfway through. You know, so just it's responding so far. The last PET scan looked good. So just, you know, let's let's just trust it and see what happens. All right, I'll trust it. Sure. So I got my last round on Valentine's Day. I uh, got another PET scan in the end of March. And sure enough, you know, I had as much then as I did at the beginning, just about. You know, I mean, probably 90% of what was 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 there was back. Um, and, and at that point, you're fucked. This disease, that that, that what I had that first round of treatment is 80% effective, which sounds great. But if it's not effective, you are, you are in a world of hurt and there's not a lot of options left. Like this is one good shot and that's it. So my only two choices were, um, were a bone marrow transplant, which is, which is the, the next and last rung on the ladder at the time, or this new treatment that I got at my hospital in Hershey called uh, CAR-T. And that's what I ended up doing. I ended up getting this CAR-T treatment and that's what saved my life. But that near death, the treatment itself damn near killed me. Like I was really concerned that, that the, the cancer might not get me, but this medicine's gonna. And I spent 17 days in the hospital, uh, a fever of over 105 for a lot of those days. A lot of those days, six days I spent in the ICU. So I was getting a, a neural response uh, it's called neural toxicity to the medicine. Um, it was it was really really bad, and uh, and it and it damn near killed me. But I was able to to get out of it, and so far I've been better. But 
it was when I was there that I thought like this is this is not a relationship that I like. Like if the good ones always get sick, I don't want to be a part of that. Like I don't want to have I don't want to be in this relationship. And when I got out, I had a lot of time on my hands. I still couldn't work. I was selling real estate, but I, I couldn't really do much of that because I couldn't drive for a while. And I was nervous because my immune system was still kind of a disaster. So I didn't want to be walking in and out of people's houses. And you know, it, it, it wasn't until last November that I really went back to work full time. So I had a lot of time on my hands and I started really looking at this and really like asking these questions like, is this, is this true? Like, is this really true? And that, that's what it came down to. Is this real? And if it is, what does that mean? And if it's not, you know, what does that mean? So I found a bunch of YouTube videos. You know, I went back to all of my old textbooks. You know, read a bunch of my, my old class notes and apologetics and all that stuff. Found a lot of podcasts. And then I started uh, reading the Bible. I'm going to read this story and see, see what comes up. And the more I read, the more it came across as just a history of an abusive relationship. The whole thing screams of if... He wouldn't hit me if I didn't make him so angry. The whole plot is that written larger and larger and larger. Like the guys from, from college, we got in, they get in this debate and say, no, no, it's you're reading it wrong. And that's that's all the, the debate or the, the apologist answer. You're taking it out of context, you're reading it wrong, it's not in the in the right language, it's mistranslated. Like there's all these things. Um, it's the wrong genre, you know, it's not history, it's a myth or it's a poem, like, okay, cool, all that may be true, but it's the plot of the story that really bothers me. I don't think I ever thought that there was an actual Adam and Eve and a snake, right? But, but the point of a myth is to tell a story that reveals some type of larger truth. Right? That's kind of the idea behind mythology. So if this is a myth, what's the point of the story? It seems that the point of the story is that Adam and Eve were, were screwed from the first chapter. Like they were set up to fail from the get-go. Like they put God puts them in the garden, whether it's the first day or the fourth day, whatever it was, doesn't matter. All right. The plot, the plot is you're in the garden, you can do anything you want, you can name all these animals, you got dominion over all of it. All these things are for you. All the thing you can't do is eat that fruit. That's it. And then this animal, this snake or whatever, comes up and talks to Eve. She has no reason to disbelieve what he's saying, because they have dominion over all the animals and God didn't give him any warning. Like, hey, look out for this guy, by the way, he's sneaky. So how on earth are they supposed to know that what they're going to do is the wrong decision if they haven't got the knowledge of what right or wrong is? They won't know if they failed past the test until they fail the test. That's the plot of that story. What would you say to somebody, and I want to play devil's advocate because I'd like to hear your response. What would you say to somebody, and I'm sure you might have heard it already, who would say, you know, you can't be bitter at God. Bad things happen to everybody. Lots of people get cancer and God, you know, maybe that's just God's working in mysterious ways and he has a better plan that we don't know anything about. What would you say to that argument? So I think if that's your argument, you are vastly underestimating the God that you say to worship. Right. If that's the argument, that this is all working together, that this is how God had to do it to make you learn a lesson or whatever it is, whatever that plan is. Look at the vastness of the creation that God made. Look at the universe. Look at all the, the, the incredible size, expanding at the speed of light, all the planets, the stars, the universe, all that stuff. He's made all of that. And he's got to get you sick to teach you a lesson. 
like even now with all this coronavirus stuff, like people saying they're so blessed with all this stuff and all the wonderful things that, that God has taught them in this time. Like, did he have to kill 200,000 people in this country alone just for you to learn to value your kids? It's something I hear quite a lot from ex-believers that they can't wrap their heads around looking back that people truly believe that people have to suffer and die because that was God's plan to help people learn something. Because why do those people not matter? Like, why didn't God care enough about them to keep them alive, to teach them a lesson? They're the ones that had to die. Why? It just doesn't right. make it's sense. There's almost divine arrogance on their part. Like, I am the special one. I'm so special that all these other people had to suffer so that I could learn. Like, that's how special I am, that God would kill these people to teach me a lesson. It's, it was, it wasn't, like I said, it, it, none of it was like a, a once and done, like, that's it. That's the final straw. Like, even cancer wasn't the final straw. Like, it, it was just a piling on of, of questions that the answers that I was getting just didn't satisfy anymore. And they hadn't been satisfying for a long time. And finally, the answers that came were like, well, it's, it doesn't make sense because, because it doesn't make sense. Like, and that's enough. That's enough of an answer. This doesn't make sense. Like two plus two doesn't equal five. Okay, cool. And me trying to believe myself into saying it does isn't going to make it make sense because all these other things are based on two and two equaling four. I definitely don't believe in whatever it is that the Old Testament and the New Testament wrote about. I, I, I do believe there's some magic in the universe, though. I don't know what it is. And I'm, and I'm okay with not understanding what it is, but I think there's something special. And I don't know if it's a personal higher power or karma or what it is, but there's, I think there's something. I just don't, I haven't come to a solid understanding of what that is. And I may never. And my dad used to say, I believe, I just don't know what I believe in. You know, it's, I think it's kind of like that. <laughs> What is the biggest difference that you've noticed in yourself after crossing over to no longer believing in God or no longer practicing your faith? That I take myself both more and less seriously at the same time. By that, I mean that um, I take myself more seriously insofar as this is my fault. Whatever it is that's here, whatever it is that I'm dealing with, this is my fault. This is my responsibility. I don't mean fault as in like I fucked up, but like this is here because of the decisions that I made, right? And that's the only thing I have any control over is the decisions that I'm going to make with the, with the data that I'm presenting, with the, with the situation that I have. This is all my fault. Not that we're not all interrelated and everything's connected and other people's decisions don't have impacts on me. They do. But how I deal with that, how I move forward from whatever position I'm in, whatever situation I am in, this is my fault. This is my responsibility and I have to own it. This isn't because I'm being punished. This isn't because the devil is tempting me. This isn't because God is testing me like he did to Job. Like, what about that story though, right? Like that whole book is God ruins life to win bet. So it's not that. It's not that God is trying to win a bet with the devil over my life. It's not that God is blessing me particularly well. You know, if I land a big account, it's not because God put it in place. It's because I sent out a whole shit ton of emails and one of them landed. It's my fault. I am responsible for what is happening right now. Everything that I have control over, I have control over. So I take myself much more seriously in that sense. I take myself much less seriously because this is all my fault. <laughs> this is where this is what I've got. And this is all we have. I don't think there's any eternal 
next best thing. Enjoy what you have. Enjoy your place in the universe now. You know, and try not to assign so much big meaning to everything. It's not there. It's not there. The meaning is that you are here, right? And find the beauty and find the passion and find the, the purpose in where you're at. Like what we have, like this incredible physical universe we live in, why is that not enough? Like it's amazing, right? So don't take yourself so seriously. It's not like you're going to live forever and ever and ever someplace else. We're specks of stardust. You know, we're here for a little while. And I suspect when I'm gone, it'll feel for me very much like it did before I was here. And maybe I'm wrong. You know, and that's, that's the, the, the niggling doubt in the back. Maybe I'm wrong. But I also feel like if all that stuff about God is true and he is loving and merciful and kind, and I am doing my best to seek that out, to seek out truth wherever I find it and live my life according to that, if I die and it turns out I'm wrong, I don't think he's going to say, well, sorry, buddy. You blew it. Life is going to be hard no matter what you believe, right? No matter what you do, you're going to struggle. So I would way rather struggle with reality, you know, and struggle with things that I have actual control over and struggle with stuff that I can do something about rather than it be hard because I'm trying to follow these arbitrary rules and it's not working out. So my last question, what would you say to somebody who is maybe in that place or in that transition of, I'm not sure I want to continue believing this, but I'm kind of scared that maybe this is Satan and I, I don't know if I should look into these things. I just know that it doesn't really make sense. What would you say to someone if you can intervene in that moment? I'd say to trust that intuition and, and come at it from kind of a theistic side. Like if God really made you beautifully and wonderfully, why would you not trust the intuition that he gave you? Like come at it from that way. Like if you still have your foot in the door, like same kind of thing, like, like teaching lessons, like the guy that made this entire universe has got to get me sick to teach me a lesson. I feel like he's smarter than that, right? Same thing. Like if you're having these questions, you're using that very same reason that you've been supposedly created with. So maybe use that, like read the Bible, read it as a story, like read it for what it is. Like don't give it any weight. Beyond, this is a book. You know, is this the kind of book that you want to base your life on? You know, and then maybe read The Lord of the Rings and see if that's the kind of book you want to read your, base your life on. Like, do your homework. Thank you so, so much for joining me today. I can't tell you how grateful I am for your courage and willingness to share. And before I let you go, will you tell everybody the name of your podcast and just a little brief summary about what it's about? Sure. It's called Dying Laughing. That It's called the Dying Laughing Podcast. Um, it's me and my friend Oya. We met in the cancer ward and we found that, that while cancer 100% sucks, if you can laugh at it, it sucks a little less. So that's really the, the, the summary, right? That, and, and that's true with everything, right? My, my whole spiel when I speak to, especially the cancer folks, is like, find the stuff that's funny. Right? There's always something that's funny. Well, again, thank you so much. And